Podcast at Union Now. Our guest today is Rabbi Jonah Dov Pesner. He has served as the director of the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism since 2015. Rabbi Pesner also serves as Senior Vice President of the Union for Reform Judaism, and over the course of his career, he has led and supported campaigns for social justice, economic opportunity, immigration reform, LGBTQ equality, human rights, and a variety of other causes. He is dedicated to building bridges to collectively confront anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and other forms of hate and bigotry. Good afternoon. I am Kelly Brown Douglas, Dean of the Episcopal Divinity School at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. I want to thank you for joining us in another of our conversations in the Just Vote series especially as we are now five days away from the November 3rd election. I am most honored to have joining me in today's conversation, someone I consider not simply my friend, but my brother, Rabbi Jonah Pesner, who serves as the director of the Religious Action Center for Reform Judaism. He has led the Religious Action Center since 2015 Rabbi Peschner also serves as Senior Vice President of the Union for Reform Judaism, a position to which he was appointed in 2011. Amongst the many boards on which he serves is the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, and the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights and Human Rights. Rabbi Peschner was named one of the most influential rabbis in America by Newsweek magazine, as well as named by the Center for American Progress as one of the faith leaders to watch in 2020. And this I know to be true. He is a tireless advocate for social justice for all people. He shows up. I know Rabbi Peschner, not from gatherings that we have had around tables, but he always shows up. I would always see him. He is one who is committed and is always on the arc that bends toward justice. So I thank you for just simply taking the time to be with us in conversation today, even as I thank you for your continued uh, voice and witness. Thank you, Dr. Douglas, it's an honor. So there's much to cover. And so I wanna, jump right in in the short time that we have. Rabbi Peschner, Rack has a long history of involvement with the fight for not only Jewish social justice, but in the movement for social justice more broadly, especially in the civil rights struggle. Even more specifically, Rack has a special relationship for, to the 1965 Voting Rights Amendment. Can you tell us about that? It's a great story. And let me just return the compliment. I love you, Reverend Dr. Kelly Douglas. Um, we Showing up is about being together. We've been, you know, when too many plagues of gun violence and mass shootings and right here in Washington, D.C., where you and I often find each other, or even when we travel down to Birmingham, Alabama, to try and help the local community heal and everything in between. So it's an honor to be your brother. It really is. Thank you for that ultimate compliment. Um, the story of the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism is really profound and a great parable for where we are today, Dr. Douglas, mm -hmm. right? It was in the um, peak of the Jim Crow era 
that a white Jewish guy was on his honeymoon in Florida and he was from the Northeast and, and he was typical of the American Jewish kind of success story. He was the child of immigrants. He, you know, became fabulously wealthy and then became an active philanthropist. But his philanthropy was defined by this experience. He was on his honeymoon in Florida. And for the first time in his life, he saw a sign everywhere he went, no Jews, no dogs, no Jews, no dogs. The searing feeling of anti-Semitism. he turned to a black taxi driver who was driving around and said, what is this? And the driver looked at him and said, they don't even bother with us. Wow. And Kaplan understood injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. He became involved in the National Association of the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP. At its peak, he was elected. He was the last white Jewish president of the NAACP. My board seat with NAA traces itself to Kivy Kaplan, who was oh. that philanthropist. And not only did he become a, a champion for the NAACP, he bought a embassy sized mansion in DuPont Circle and gave it to the reformed Jewish movement, but under one condition, he said, I will give you this gift if you become the hub, the center of civil rights activity in America. And so it was that our first director, Rabbi Dick Hirsch, his first act as director was to invite his dear friend, a young charismatic pastor named Martin to come. And he said, Martin, good news. Now you have an office in Washington. Little known tidbit of, of American history. Dr. King didn't have an office in Washington. So it was a reformed Jewish institution. And it was a result of our hosting the leadership conference for civil rights, which was the kind of coordinating team of lawyers and other activists, right? Mostly white Jews and black Christians and others that met that was housed in our offices, they drafted the Voting Rights Act of 1965 in our conference room. Hmm. That story is a powerful story. And what it reminds me of and should remind us all of, first of all, is that when we were talking about this thing of social injustice, when we're talking about this thing that is white supremacy, when we're talking about this thing that is bigotry, right? We are talking about these realities of oppression, of inequality, of subjugation that impact all of us. And most especially we're talking about, when we talk about anti-Semitism, we're talking about the white racism. We're talking about the same kind of evil forces that have plagued uh, black America and other persons of color. And so one of the things that you have been so instrumental uh, as well as Rack, but you have been so instrumental in uh, bringing forward is the importance of coalitions, the importance of understanding the intersecting realities, the importance of understanding our not our joint humanity, not only as we are similarly oppressed, but our joint hopes and vision for freedom. And so as, as we talk about this in this time that we find ourselves in and going to the polls, I think about the ways in which the tactics that have been engaged in suppressing the vote. And, and we know that from the moment that the VRA was passed, indeed the moment the 14th and 15th amendments were passed, there have always been this counter movement to suppress the black vote as well as the votes and rights of other uh, vulnerable communities. And that these tactics of course have taken even more sort of insidious forms uh, since the 2013 gutting of that. So I wanna ask you, 
What voter suppression tactics are you most concerned about? What concerns you as we go to the polls on Tuesday? And I know that RAC has been most engaged in this struggle against voter suppression. So <laughs> in yeah. a word, can you speak to that? Yeah, thank you for this. And it's so important because at the end of the day, everybody watching this Facebook Live can make a difference. We can all protect democracy. We can all step up to make sure that every voice is heard and that every vote is counted and that every vote may not be counted on Tuesday. There may be votes counted in the weeks after, but the legacy of American democracy, and I will invoke the name of Congressman John Lewis, who got his head bashed in on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and C.T. Vivian, who fought for the right to vote, and over my shoulder, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who That's fought right. for the right to vote. And I will invoke the names of Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner, two white Jewish boys and a black, young black Christian man who gave their lives for the right to vote. Our legacy is to make sure that every voice is heard when every vote is counted. So everybody on this call can make a difference. You alluded to Shelby V. Holder in 2013 that eviscerated this Voting Rights Act, right? The, right. the critical piece of it, which was preclearance, which was that states where there was a history of uh, voter suppression, they couldn't change their voting rules without preclearance from the Department of Justice. Well, what did we see starting in 2013? State after state after state rolled back voting rights and started oppressing the vote. By the way, because we're talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I must just lift up her dissent. We're still in a period of mourning over Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She's got to let me do this. Her dissent in Shelby V. Holder, critiquing the majority, Justice Roberts writing for the majority, basically said, well, things are better now. Dr. Douglas, things are better now? Ask right. George Floyd and Breonna Taylor how much things are better now. Right? Ask the millions of people of color and low-income voters whose votes may not count if things are better now. Ruth Bader Ginsburg in her dissent said, things are better now is like standing in a rainstorm underneath an umbrella and saying, gee, I don't need the umbrella anymore because I'm not getting wet. Well, we are in a tsunami of voter suppression, Dr. Douglas. Right. And what are we seeing? The closing of polling places, largely in communities of color or low-income communities, the assault on vote by mail, the reduction of services in the uh, postal service, and here we are in a pandemic where black and brown people, people with disabilities, and elderly people are afraid to actually go to places that may threaten their lives and should have every opportunity to vote, whether it's vote by mail, early voting, et cetera. So there are the threats to voter suppression. The, the best one was in North Carolina, which oh, was yes. so brutal, the federal court called it racist with surgical precision, like targeting by zip code where black and brown folk live and suppressing those votes. So we can help, we can make a difference, right? We can all be part of Lawyers and Collars, which is a partnership with Sojourners and the African-American Clergy Network and the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights to either do poll watching, or if you're not, don't feel safe to be at the polls, to uh, work the hotlines, to make sure that as people are having their votes pressed, they have a place to go or a place to call. And all for all the clergy watching, God help us to do de-escalation training. Yes. Because those same tiki torch bearing white supremacists saying Jews will not replace us or the folks who are showing up with their AR whatever rifles, right. we need clergy to put on their robes and go out and sing songs and pray prayers and keep the tensions low and democracy on full alert. 
what you remind us of, and I spoke yesterday with Reverend Tracy Blackman, who uh, I know you know, is the importance, and we started out this conversation with the importance of showing up and the importance of religious leaders showing up and just being present uh, at the polls, because we know in a place like Michigan, they've... Uh, overthrew the ban that would keep people from open carrying at the polls, uh, being there with guns. And so any way in which we can safely be a presence there. And so thank you for reminding us of that because, you know, it only voter suppression will continue. And, and, and a part of that is voter intimidation. But I must say, Ramapeshner, one of the most moving things for me. I voted, uh, early voted on Monday, and I know you've early voted. And when I early voted uh, here in Maryland, I'm here uh, right outside of DC, the lines were very long. But the thing that moved me most was seeing very elderly Black people standing in that line. It was drizzling and cold. And standing in that line, there was a gentleman there on two canes. Uh, there was a woman there in a wheelchair. There was another a very elderly woman there on a walker. And, you know, I looked at them and said, they are there yeah. risking their lives because they in fact know that their lives are at stake, right? in this election and that the way to fight voter suppression is to get out there any way you can and to vote. So I wanna ask you, you have said that uh, in making the decision, you've said that one of the highest mitzvahs in Judaism is saving human life. And uh, I won't try to say the Hebrew word, I'll let, I'll let you, say it. And you've spoken of that in terms of following the CDC guidelines when we go out to vote in the face of a pandemic. But I want to stretch that and ask you further, how does that translate as we go into the voting booth? What are the values? What does it mean? What's that mitzvah mean in terms of the way in which we should vote? What a beautiful question. I want to savor it and let your viewers just savor the question. The Hebrew you're referring to is pikuach nefesh, which literally means to save a soul, to save a life. And it was this rabbinic idea that any Jewish rule or law, and for people that are watching who are Christian or not of the Jewish faith, there's a, a, they know that Judaism is, is a law-centered religion, right? There's all kinds of rules. But the rabbis understood that the rules didn't mean anything if they didn't serve life right? God says in the Torah famously, choose life that you and your offspring may live. At the end of the day, existence, living, breathing is why we're on this earth and to make something of those moments we're given. So just to follow the rules at the expense of the life. So what does that actually look like? I, first of all, I would invoke the name again of George Floyd, who died calling out for his mother, who gave him life and asking for his breath, the source of his life. And for that officer of the law, who is accountable to us and to George Floyd, to have stolen his life, to have been like the modern Pharaoh, to steal his breath and his life is the opposite of Pikuach Nefesh, where our job is to preserve and protect the Nefesh, the life, the breath, the soul. 
So that means, practically speaking, during an election when there's a pandemic and that pandemic is disproportionately brutalizing vulnerable communities, it means running an election that promotes life and doesn't threaten it. And so therefore, if we have to wait for a month to know the actual outcome of every race in every town and every county, and even the presidential election, because we want it to preserve life and let people mail in ballots, so be it. But you asked the deeper question, which is, how does Pikoach Nefesh inform the way I vote? I'm informed, I will, I will hear, I will bring the, the voices and the breath of those whose names I mm. mentioned earlier into the voting booth when I vote. That I'm voting for Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and Ahmed Arbery, that I'm voting for Goodman, Cheney and Schwerner, that I am voting for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that their memories be a blessing and that they did not die in vain. I am voting for all of those children and grandchildren that you and I look forward to having in this earth who will live in a planet after we're gone that may be irreversibly getting cooked into oblivion. I'm voting for all of the children who will not die from gun violence in our country because we finally face the fact that having more guns than people makes no sense. I'll be voting for all of the black and brown people who've been impacted by racist immigration policies and racist uh, criminal justice and policing practices. I'll be carrying into the voting booth all the LGBTQ family whose rights are under assault and all of the women who are lacking control over their life and their bodies. That's how I'll be thinking about my vote. With that, we should sit a while. That vote in a way that not only honors the breath, the sacred breath of others, but does nothing to take that breath away. What a guideline. So I want to ask you, there are, we know, for instance, that the thing that prompted Martin Luther King's letter from the Birmingham jail were religious leaders, Christian and Jewish, some of our Episcopal church bishops, who essentially said to King in a letter that they wrote that that's not the role of religious leaders to be on the public square, to be in the political space, engaged in these controversial social justice issues. And at that time, as is today, right? Racial justice and freedom for people blessed with ebony grace is a controversial issue. Can you imagine? But it is, and we know that it is, when even from the highest offices of the land, they will support the right of a young man to carry a gun and kill two protesters and yet not stand up for the rights of those who have their breath taken away under the knee of a police officer. So racial justice and justice for black life is still a controversial issue. What do you say? <laughs> to those faith leaders, those religious leaders, because that legacy still lives on. Who would say to you, Rabbi Peshner, you are violating your role as a religious leader. I humbly walk in the footsteps of Isaiah who came before mm -hmm. us, Dr. Douglas, who walked into the temple on the holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur, when Jews were 
praying and begging God for atonement. And they were fasting and singing. And Isaiah disrupted all of it and thundered from the back. Is this the fast that I want, says God? To bull, to bow your head like a bullrush when there are people who are starving, sleeping in the streets naked, lacking of housing, and who are poor. But rather it is to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to house the homeless, etc. Franz Kafka described that moment in the history of the world as like a leopard walking into the sanctuary. And then, of course, the rabbis took that quote from Isaiah and made it into liturgy, and now nobody pays attention anymore. So I think it's on us, Dr. Douglas, every year, every month, every week, and every day to rise up and be Isaiah and disrupt. Remember, the critique was not only of the regime in Isaiah, it was the priestly cult that had become corrupt. It was those figures religious who pretended to have a monopoly on the spirit and on what God was asking and had become utterly corrupt. And so I say to my clergy partners who don't show up, who don't want to mix politics and religion, I go back to my childhood. I went, I heard every week the prophetic message of my rabbi and then went to a public school in the Bronx and saw the utter and radical inequality and suffering. My life is dedicated to harmonizing the prophetic words of our tradition and the values with the reality on the streets in which we live. Yeah, again, so powerfully said. I, I like to say to uh, my Christian colleagues that, you know, Jesus wasn't crucified because he prayed too much. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> uh, because he prayed, he was able to carry the cross, but that's not why he was crucified. Uh, uh, so thank you for, for that. So we're coming to the end of time. So I've got a couple more questions that I want to ask you. Uh, maybe I'll sneak in three, three quick questions. One is, yep, November 3rd is a few days away. Each day seems like a year. Uh, but November 3rd is only the beginning of the work that we have to do. Our vote is the first step uh, to the work that we will have to do to begin to lead our nation, lead us as a people back toward its better selves, uh, back toward its best ideals and vision of what we can be and who we can become. So what what is your message to uh, religious leaders and people after November 3rd? How would you like to see them engaged? I want to go back to what I was saying to people in the weeks and months after the election of 2016, because I would say things like 2.1 million Americans are incarcerated at any one given time, more than any other country in the world. Dr. Douglas, think about that for a moment, not just per capita, raw numbers, and that one in three black men in America go to jail. That's right. I, as a white guy, have a one in 17 shot of going to jail. Latinos, one in five. That one in four women report being sexually assaulted on campus. That the Voting Rights Act had been eviscerated years before. That was all before 2016. That's right. Ask Michael Brown, Freddie Gray, Tamir Rice, Sandra Bland. They were before the election of 2016. We had work to do then. And this four years has 
uh, revealed a depth. And frankly, George Floyd gave his life so that people who had never understood or talked about right. white privilege, racism, and the brutal inequality in our systems are now paying attention and, and open and willing to do. So the question I have for, at least for my people, Dr. Douglas, because I can only preach to my own choir, right? <laughs> what will we do, right? We have organized in the Reform Jewish Movement 500,000 votes for this election so that we could build political power and hold elected officials on both sides of the aisle because we are nonpartisan, we are a religious community, 501c3, but to hold them accountable. What policies will we enact because it isn't just about rhetoric that is racist, it is about policies that systematize racism, injustice, and inequality. Poverty is a policy. What are the policies that we will pass? And we will advocate, whether it's the George Floyd policing bill, whether it's the Voting Rights Restoration Act, whether it's a whole litany of legislation that is national in Congress, but state by state, community by community, to hold our country accountable to our enduring values as Americans. Yeah, and to hold ourselves accountable, right? To hold ourselves accountable yeah. to the claims of our various traditions of faith. Uh, to, because I often say, as you have just pointed out, that these things have happened on our watch, right? We are at this point that at these converging pandemics revealing the ongoing pandemic that has been racial injustice in this country, that has happened on our watch. And so what will we continue to allow happen or not happen? Uh, on our watch. So I think that's a powerful message. Uh, to, uh, this all didn't begin uh, with the 2016 election. So shift gears a little bit. Voting. Can you share with us your most memorable voting experience? I have to say, I think it was Monday mm. because I've always voted and I've always loved voting and I took it for granted a lot. You know, I'd, I'd vote, I travel a lot, so I'd vote absentee a lot. And I, and I was actually standing in line with my wife. We were talking about memories of, um, frankly, we couldn't remember a lot. Where were we this year? Where were we that year? We got there before dawn. And uh, this past year, I actually had traveled to South Africa on a pilgrimage with my family to kind of learn about the history of apartheid and to kind of what lessons learned from the South African experience I could take to my own leadership. And so I stood online before the dawn broke and the line snaked so far around the block, I couldn't see what was ahead of me. And I turned to my wife and I said, this reminds me of South Africa after Mandela was freed. That's right. The way in which people... You know, now it was fine. Like I was fine. You know, we waited for an hour. It was cold. We're fine. But it was a glimpse as you talked about those folks that you saw on your line with, you know, two canes and in the, who are just, I will never take voting for granted again, Dr. Douglas, never. Mm. That's a good place to end on. And a good message to never take voting for granted and our rights to vote and what we vote for. And I always think we aren't simply voting for ourselves. We're voting for those who came before us who fought for the right to vote and never got to vote. 
and we're voting for those who will come after us. Thank you, Rabbi Jonah Peschner, and thank you for your witness, for your voice, and truly, thank you for really being my brother, because being a brother, being a sibling, begins with just showing up and protecting the sacred breath of each and every one of us. And you're my brother. Thank you, and to all you who are listening, vote. Oh.